So you're at Genesis chapter 2, so eyes on the page. And uh, we're going to start, just look up one verse before that, the last verse that we ended with last week after we looked at the six days of creation. And in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then the next verse, Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And just think about that. The heavens and the earth, everything that we see, and we can see a lot now, even more than ever before in the history of the world because of the telescopes and all of that type of thing, and it just is never-ending. And then it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested. Now, you need to know that the word for rested here means ceased or stopped, and it's pronounced sabbat. That's, where, that's the root word for Sabbath, and that's mostly what we're going to be talking about, the Sabbath. And so uh, on the seventh day, God rested, sabbat, from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That means he sanctified it. The sanctification is becoming holy, set apart for God's purposes. So on the, uh, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on that seventh day, he rested, ceased from all the work of creating that he had done. This is interesting. For six days, God said... Evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the sixth day. But he did not say the same regarding the seventh day. Therefore, the seventh day is the day, it would seem, with no ending. And I believe that is the point of what is being communicated here. Someone wrote this, it is the rest of achievement, not inactivity, for he, God, nurtures what he creates. If God stopped doing that, everything would just disappear. He's keeping it going, keeping it together perfectly. So here is an outline that follows the Hebrew literally. The midpoint of each sentence has the same phrase. So I've put it up on the screen. Here it is. So God finished by the seventh day his work, which he did. Next line. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he did. And next line, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, made it a holy day, because on it he rested from all his work that God created to do. So this seventh day must somehow be very unique. Keep in mind, there were no Ten Commandments yet, This is not the Sabbath day that was to be kept under the law. Nevertheless, the fourth commandment about the Sabbath pointed back to this passage in the creation account as its source. But at this point, there is no Sabbath to be celebrated once a week. So God stopped his creating, but he did not abandon his creation. This is a picture of God completing his creation, including us. We're part of it. And now enjoying what he declared very good and blessing it even for our satisfaction and pleasure and security. You know, I've called the sermon, Mankind, the crown of creation. That's a big deal. We're the crown of creation. Now, God has finished his work at this point. And now he is at rest, enjoying and maintaining what he created for us. And as I've already said, should he stop maintaining the creation, it would just all disappear. But he never gets tired, and we can be assured of his blessings for forever. So the idea of one day out of seven for rest is clearly part of the creation order. The reason for the seventh-day commandment is for us to worship God by enjoying his provision for our lives, 
to take pleasure in and rest in the confidence that God will continually take care of us. The work of creation is now over. God is now enjoying his creation that includes a special place for you and me to serve him and be taken care of by him. Now, look down the page a bit. We'll just go down to verse 15, and then we'll come back up again. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The word put is the word for rest. And so the, the picture here, you'll, I, th- I hope you'll really get it as we go through this. The Lord God took the man and you could say rested him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, Adam was formed to take care of the garden. And we'll talk about that word formed. You'll see it in a moment. It's just wonderful. He was formed to take care of the garden, to joyfully care for God's creation. This gave Adam purpose. It gave him dignity. It gave him the ability to receive from the creation all he needed to live a fulfilled life in the garden God made in a place called Eden. God rested. And we're to rest also in God as we enjoy God's creation. So keep in mind the word rest has the idea of security in it. Don't think of a nap in the afternoon. nothing wrong with that. But think of the satisfaction of finishing a job and standing back and enjoying your handiwork. I used this illustration the last time I taught this passage. Imagine you were capable of building your own home, and some of you here are. You have just finished all the work to build your dream home. And now you enter the front door and start preparing a meal in the kitchen and rejoicing in how well everything is made and how secure you feel in your new home. That's a picture of the word rest. Rest is the goal of creation. And when God finished the creation, he rested. Now, the Sabbath then is an invitation to rejoice in God's creation and recognize God's sovereignty over our time, and our lives. Uh, One Sabbath uh, day, Jesus and his disciples were traveling through a grain field. Uh, They were hungry, the disciples, and they picked some heads of grain and ate them. And some very legalistic Pharisees who were trying to catch Jesus and doing something wrong were right on the spot, and they immediately jumped in with all their legalism and accused the disciples of working on the Sabbath because to pick grain on the Sabbath, they, had, they added so many rules to the Sabbath, nobody could keep it. And so they uh, uh, said that if you pick grain, it was the same as harvesting, and you're not supposed to harvest or reap or any of that on the Sabbath. And Jesus had a lot to say to them, and you can tell when you read the the chapter in Mark's gospel, chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, he was pretty upset at them, but the last thing he said was to them, Mark 2, 27 and 28, Jesus said to these legalistic religious men, the Sabbath was made for man, mankind, not man for the Sabbath. And then he said this, so... And he's probably looking right at them. So, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I know what it says. It says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He was declaring deity. He was saying, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And right away they knew what he meant was that what the disciples did was perfectly wonderful. They were just simply eating because they were hungry. In other words... The Sabbath is a sign like the rainbow in Noah's story, a sign of God's faithfulness and provision. In the Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 31, two verses, Moses is writing this, hearing from God, say to the Israelites, God's saying to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so you may know that I am the Lord, the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, who makes you holy. 
It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he abstained from work. And what's the next word? And rested. So the seventh day of Genesis is telling us that we are to trust in, we're to rest in God every day for his provision which he will always supply. Now, Adam was given the task of serving in the garden, taking care of it for God. In return, God promised to supply everything Adam needed to serve him. Adam served God, not for shelter, not for food, not for clothing. He didn't need clothes. And if he had obeyed God, he would never have needed clothes. And when Adam sinned, then this service changed to work, and it was no longer the pleasure God designed it to be. It was now by the sweat of his brow, which was the consequence of Adam's disobedience. And we'll study all of that next week. Nevertheless, in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus reversed the curse for those of us who have been recreated, reborn, who are in Christ. John Walton writes this. Is the Sabbath a law that we Christians have to keep? Well, the answer is that if we have to be reminded, commanded, or coerced to observe it, it ceases to serve its function. The Sabbath is not the sort of thing that should have to be regulated by rules. It is the way we acknowledge that God is on the throne, that this world is his world, and that our time is his gift to us. Keeping the Sabbath was to be like a reset button so we can regain God's perspective on our lives and enjoy his provision for our lives. The rest pictured in Genesis is the rest of faith, and it is to be lived and experienced right now. When the Israelites were delivered from Egypt through the exodus of the Red Sea, that they were to go into the promised land it was described as a land of milk and honey, which means it was very prosperous. God said, you just need to go in there, and you're going to take over everything. Everything's going to be fine, and you, you, do, you won't have to build any houses or, every, or anything. It's all, everything will be yours. So they were to possess this land that already had everything they needed to live an abundant life, but most of them did not have faith and kept questioning God and demanding their own way. So most of them did not enter the promised land. Only two did, Caleb and Joshua. Uh, Joshua used to be my favorite, but Caleb is because I'm old now, and I like him because he, he was old, but he never got old. He just kept going to the end. In the book of Hebrews, the writer used this picture of their lack of faith in that incident to challenge us about our lack of faith. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 9, reads this way. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their unbelief of disobedience. Unbelief, that's the problem. The writer of Hebrews is commenting on the unbelief of those who refused to go into the promised land. Well, they went in, and they came out, oh, we could never take it over. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes and all of this kind of stuff. They refused to trust God's promises. Therefore, our Sabbath rest is our faith in God. That's our Sabbath rest. Not only for salvation, that's fine and important, but for his provision for our lives. So here it is in one sentence. Faith in Jesus is our Sabbath. That is our rest. Oh, I hope we can. Get, I hope I can understand this. Uh, Jesus, <clears throat> he said this. I remember it was one of my very first memory verses when I was being discipled. A few verses, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter eleven. Well, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, but it's Matthew chapter eleven, right at the end of chapter eleven. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. 
Every time I quote it or think about it, I always feel I will give you rest. Take my yoke, Jesus says, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For your souls. Our souls, that's who we are. For my yoke is easy. It means it's custom fit just for you. And my burden is light. It's not too heavy. So the rest Adam and Eve lost is available to us now as we walk in the Spirit in joyful obedience and response to what Jesus obtained for us on the cross. We have nothing to worry about. God is in charge. And God will supply all we need to get to heaven. That's in the book of Romans. That is the real Sabbath rest. Not a day off, but an everyday experience of God's presence. When a yoke was put on an ox, it was custom fit for that particular ox. So the ox couldn't even hardly, it didn't scrape him or anything. It was just right. And, and then, though, the ox gave up its ability to do anything but what the ox driver decided. So Jesus is saying, slip into my custom-made yoke for you and let me direct you. I never go in the wrong direction. I always keep a straight line I, uh, or I don't end up in the wrong place. Just follow me. Now, many of us fully trust God for our salvation but then think we have to take care of every little detail in our lives on their own. I, mean, I know what I'm talking about here. My wife's first husband's like this. <laughs> Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This should help us. I hope you've all memorized it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean or lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways... Acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. The, when I memorize it, he'll make your paths straight, right down the line, if we'll just trust him. Or maybe you're a worrier. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are never to worry about anything. I imagine the Apostle Peter was thinking of Matthew chapter 6 when he wrote 1 Peter 5, 7, which reads, cast all your anxieties or cares on him or worries on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So we need to remember we are made in God's image. We learned that last week. Male and female, he made us. In God's image, he made us. So that means we can experience God's rest and those who do not know him can see his image in us. There should be enough difference in our lives that as we're around people who aren't believers, that they have to ask us how we are like what we are. The rest is a seven-day week trusting God, not a one-day-a-week personal holiday. Rest or trust is to be a characteristic of our lives that can be seen by those around us. Well, it's sort of, that's sort of where that whole section from chapter 1 ends. And in verse 4, we have a, a sort of a break here. And it says this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. The word account is important here. Uh, it, the, the word account is, this word, it's, it's, it's uh, toledoth is how you say it, toledoth. And uh, it's the account of the heavens and the earth. And if you're trying to outline the book of, of Genesis, then you should find that word, toledoth, or account. And, you sh uh, and then every time you see it, it's a new start. It's about the ancestry of someone uh, in this case, it's what happened to the heavens and the earth. So this is the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth when they're created. This is what happened. Uh, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it means this is the account of or this is what became of. You could translate it. I think this is the best translation here is this is what became of the heavens and the earth that God had made. So it was sort of, we've got a, a break in the story, and we're going to head in a little bit of a different direction. So this account 
embraces the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of man, the temptation, the fall, and the curse, which includes a picture of the gospel, all of which we'll do, or most of which we'll do next week, a little bit now. So now we have a slightly different view of the creation so we can understand God's relationship with what he made and who he made. And here we see the free will that God gave us, even though he knew we would fail in the temptation in the Garden of Eden. And I'm the kind of person who would think right away, God knew he would fail? He already knew that? Yeah, he did. He's God. He can't learn. He knows everything, you know. So he knew that Adam would fail. He knew that, just like Jesus knew that Peter would fail. And so someone might say, well, then why? I mean, why did he keep going here? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me either. I wouldn't do it. I would have I'd had nothing to do with him. But I'm not God, thankfully. And God had a bigger plan. And the bigger plan is, I'm glad that he had the bigger plan. He's not like me because I wouldn't be here at all, if he had have decided to make Adam into like an automaton and forced him just to do whatever he wanted. So also, we are introduced to a new name for God, uh, Yahweh Elohim. Elohim is the creator God, and Yahweh is the Lord God. If you're reading in almost all Bibles, especially in the Old Testament, and see Lord in capital letters, that's the word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God who keeps his covenant with us. So Yahweh is God's personal name. And he is the Lord. Now look at verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God, had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So Moses is reminding his readers. Remember, Moses is writing this long after, a long time later. So Moses is reminding his readers that Adam had not fallen yet. The weeds and thistles had not grown yet. But soon Adam will have to start pulling weeds and cultivating the ground, working by the sweat of his brow. But first, we are reminded of what could have been for Adam and Eve. And here is what God intended for mankind, starting in verse 7. And this is really good. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Formed the man. Remember that word, formed the man from the dust of the ground. And breathed. This word breathe is like... A real breath, like you're out camping and the fire's kind of going down and there's just sparks, and so you're, <sighs> to get them to come back up again. He breathed uh, into his nostrils. One uh, commentator likes to say it's, it's, it's sort of like a big sloppy kiss. <laughs> so he formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, notice that this verse says we're formed by God in the image of God. We learned that last week. Formed shows, it's a word, it's a word that shows that God designed us. Now, we learned from Michael and the evolution thing, how he designed us. It's incredible. If you haven't, if you weren't here or you haven't, uh, or haven't watched the uh, videos you need to go online and watch them because it's just amazing. Uh, I've said it the last time too and the time before, but I didn't really understand everything, but I understood everything. In other words, God designed us in such an amazing way. It's hard to, you can't even, I can't get my head wrapped around it. And he's an artist. Or as Jeremiah pictures it, God is a potter and we are the clay. And he formed us, designed us from the ground or the dust of the earth. Now, the word for man is Adam. That's the word for man. And the ground of the earth, the word for that is Adama. So they both sound the same. We are dust people. I haven't heard that for a long time. Valerie used to do a teaching or at least read a book, there, a lady that said that a lot, that we're dust people. And we dust people, represented by Adam, 
wanted to become like God, and that was the principal temptation. A great Hebrew scholar, Dr. Allen, wrote this. God made man a living spiritual being with the capacity for spiritual understanding, discerning right from wrong, and communing with God. With this special act of creation, the reader can appreciate the significance of the fall. When sin entered the human race, the spiritual capacities were ruined, making a recreation essential for fellowship with God. Since the fall, regeneration by the divine breath that we just talked about, the Holy Spirit is essential for people to be restored to the life God had intended to them to have from the beginning. We need the Spirit. He's the breath of life. And when we are saved, when we become a Christian, when we're born again, we're recreated, and the Spirit comes into us. Right near the end of the book of John, there's a, a, a verse that is very controversial. I remember we had a, an hours-long argument about it uh, in seminary <clears throat> in the classroom, and it just says that, talking about the disciples and Jesus there, and all the verse says is that Jesus breathed on them. And then he talked about, received the Holy Spirit. And uh, <laughs> it's one of those kind of fun times in the seminary because I didn't really say too much. I didn't understand why all of the things people were saying. And, of course, I was an old guy in the seminary compared to the young people that were there. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, somebody asked me, what do you think? And I said, here's what I think. I think that Jesus looked at the disciples and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that was the end of the argument. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when we get saved. He breathes on us. He sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. Now, verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in a place called Eden. So it's a garden in a place called Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, that's Adam, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, beautiful trees, and good for food. So lots of trees. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God provided a place called Eden and put Adam in this paradise, this sanctuary, so to speak, to be taken to be taken care of and to serve God. If you just think about it, it's incredible. The word Eden means delight. That's what the word actually means. We are to delight in the Lord Jesus. Adam was to delight in the presence of God in the sanctuary, in the garden that was in a place called Eden. It was kind of normal for a king to have a special garden that he could go out in. Well, this is our king's garden for Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Uh, Kent Hughes points this out. Naked Adam lacked nothing. He was made in the image of God. God had kissed life into him. He was perfect. The human sovereign of creation. He had the blessing of God and the unparalleled presence of God. Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. Paradise it was. And how, much, how often do we think, oh, if only I could live there, if I had this house or this car or, or made this much money or I could lift this many weights or could run this fast. Uh, you know, uh, we are in the presence of God right now. And we're to experience that rest, that rest. It's not about laziness or anything like that. It's rest. It's enjoyment. It takes a job. You maybe have a job that you're not thrilled with. Well, rest. Do it as good as you can, as best as you can. Uh, I'm so fortunate that when I became a Christian, I decided making money was an evil thing. I didn't need all this money anyhow. That was all for people that didn't know God and and I was going to go and get a job as a janitor, literally. Unfortunately, most of you know the story. Charlie Tremendous Jones, he was a well-known 
uh, speaker all over the world, and we became friends, and I told him all that, and he said to me, and some of you know what he said, you're the biggest thumb-sucking pinhead I ever met in my life. <laughs> he says, what's your manager's name, Dave? I'll go into Dave and say, Dave, I'm a Christian. I want to tell you about Jesus. Don't forget it, because we had this guy named Carl, and he was doing really good, and then he became a Christian, and now he's doing really bad. No, no, we're to rest and do what we do all out for the Lord. He'll take care of the results. We have responsibilities, but he'll take care of the results. Now, we just saw that there were a couple of trees mentioned here. The tree of good and evil becomes a symbol of Adam and Eve's lack of obedience. Taking the fruit represents wholehearted rebellion against God's clear command. That's for next week. Remember, we're, all, we're looking at what it could have been here. And then in verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there, it was separated into four headwaters. So Moses is just writing this down. The people will know what he's talking about. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, and there's gold. Uh, the gold of, uh, uh, of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. Now, those rivers don't exist today. Now, that's, that was at a different time. And it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. We know about that one. And it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, there are those who say that this description of paradise, the Garden of Eden, is only a parable or a metaphor or some kind of symbolism. If that were true, then the story of the fall and the creation would be totally meaningless. Both Jesus and Paul uh, believed in their writing, the creation story. Well, Jesus didn't write anything, but he talked a lot about the creation. And he believed the creation story was true, and he believed that Edom was real and Adam was a real person. Uh, Ross, who I already quoted, if God did not create human life, then there's no basis for morality and ethics. And if there was no historical fall of the human race into sin, then there is no need for redemption. You know, when I put this in my notes here, I, right away I was thinking what's going on in Israel right now and uh, Hezbollah and all of this other stuff. And I realized that exactly what Ross is saying here and how important it is, when we don't have one overriding standard, then everybody chooses what they think is right or wrong, and all you have to do is watch a half hour of TV, and uh, you'll see that clearly and wonder how anybody could be so dumb as to say some of the things that some are saying. We need to have that standard, and of all of the stories, I've been around long enough now to have read enough books about other religions and other creation stories and philosophies, especially the, the secular philosophies that say, well, you know, morality and ethics is all determined by where you live and what your parents were like and all that, and, and so uh, you just don't have any absolute uh, ethic. And so th that, this story is very important. What we're studying is how it all came about. This story shows us who God is so that we do know exactly what's right and wrong. And we'll learn that all the way through, <clears throat> excuse me, the Old Testament and the New Testament teaching on Sundays. Now look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put, you remember the word put? It means to rest. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Surely die. So Adam was put into this paradise to be its spiritual servant, a priest of sorts, serving his creator by taking care of the creation. And this is the first time in the Bible that we have the word for command. God's first order concerned life and death 
good and evil. The command was a command of choice. Choose life or choose death. Choose between God's desire for your life or become your own small g God. This is, this is significant because Adam and Eve were placed into a perfect environment. Uh, they had every need taken care of, but they were still free to make choices. The choice was between life and death. Adam and Eve would have died regardless, but after death, then what? Paul made it clear that only God is immortal. <laughs> so 1 Timothy chapter 6 reads, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And John Calvin wrote, Adam's earthly life truly would have been temporal, yet he would have passed into heaven without death and without injury. Hebrews 11.5, by faith, Enoch, you should know who Enoch is, was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. He was literally raptured away. And that could happen even tonight for us. Adam and Eve would be sentenced to death the same way we're all sentenced to death. We're all going to die. Well, it might be days or months or decades from now, even minutes. But we all die. How we handle that fact determines everything about our lives. We all have the capacity for moral and spiritual responsibility. Moses also brought a message based on this passage. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You should write it down. It's really great. It's too long. I don't want to take the time to read it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, start at verse 11, or just start at the beginning, but verse 11 to 20, it's a fabulous message. And it's a clear picture of the consequences of not choosing life with God. Things have not changed. If we will obey God's commands, Jesus' commands, which are not burdensome, remember, then we'll experience God's blessing. If not, John 14, 5, the words of Jesus, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Behind the words are the idea you will be, you could put it this way, this is, he's being very direct, but you could just say it this way to be clear, if you love me, you'll be able to obey what I command. First John chapter 5, verse 3, the apostle John wrote, this is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. We're, we're, we're free when we get saved. You've heard me say it over and over again. We're free to obey God. We're not controlled anymore by our sin nature. Well, we can let the sin nature control. We can not pay attention to what the Holy Spirit says, but we don't have to. We can obey. It's, it's not burdensome. And then one verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, which I, I hope you'll read later, <coughs> reads, uh, Now... What I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. And then he goes on and talks about you can go up into heaven, you can go all over the place, you can, you can obey God. Now, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, everything in creation was either good or very good. This is the first time not good is introduced, and it's very dramatic. The Lord God said, it is not good. Why was it not good for man to be alone? Because it was impossible for him to fulfill his purpose of ruling and multiplying. God made us social beings. We need others like us to talk to and we need someone like us so we can carry out God's assignments. In this case, another man would not do. Another man would not be able to produce more people and populate God's creation. 
That's all, that is the obvious reason why men and women are physically different and why any definition of marriage that does not include a man and a woman is simply wrong. And the woman was made as a helper. Now, that's a great statement. Great statement. I mean, it's a terrific word, the word helper. And it's often used to describe God in the Bible. Psalms 33.20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our, there's the same word, help, and our shield. And the woman was Adam's help. Psalms 124.8, our help is in the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When God helps people, it means he does for them what they could never do for themselves. Believe me when I say, Valerie does for me what I could never do for myself. You know, we have a lot of laughter in our house. Uh, I haven't got there yet, but Valerie has a lot of laughter in her house. <laughs> and uh, if it wasn't for her, I probably would still be lost trying to get here. So the picture is of Eve adding to Adam's life what was missing, and also Adam adding to her life. Loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. It includes loneliness. Loneliness is always listed as one of the top reasons for suicide in our country. In the British government in 2021, they appointed a minister of loneliness. Now, it's, it's, it's actually not bad. Uh, I looked it up today to find out what does a minister of loneliness do? Well, they make sure that there are enough medical possibilities and, and, and agencies that can help people who are depressed and who need help in all areas. So that's not a bad thing. But they, they realize, for because of the, it, a lot of things like this in Britain, they have this national health system, so they have enormous statistics, and they realize how many people were committing suicide and or were ending up in terrible situations because they were all alone. And so they tried to do something. They're trying to do something about it. Uh, we are made not only to need God, but to need other people. I just, there's, you have no idea how frustrated I am sometimes uh, as a pastor when I get to know so many people or something about so many people. If some people's problems would disappear immediately if they just would become a, a one another person. And if, if they would no longer be the most important person in the room. When you read the letters Paul wrote to Timothy, you even see the depression of Paul when he talks about those who have abandoned him and how much he wants Timothy to visit him in prison. Paul knew Jesus intimately. He knew he was soon going to be in the presence of God, but he still needed other people. It is dangerous to be alone. It is. It is dangerous to keep your problems and troubles to yourself. It's an American disease to want to be a strong, silent type. You know, I did it my way. Should be sung at a lot, some funerals. But especially men have to be careful of that. But women also. Look at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now, that, this is amazing. Think about it. This isn't like a, a contest or something to make up names. Uh, God gave Adam a huge, huge vocabulary. And when he would look at the animals... To name them, he would study them, and then he would name them something that had meaning about what they were. Like, it isn't like there's a herd of cows, and so he names every cow a different name. No, cows. There, that's a herd of cows. This is a herd of giraffes. And, and it would have taken him a long time, and he would have had to pay a close attention to how they lived, to what they did. And so I had to bring all kinds of thoughts to his mind. 
So the man gave names, verse 20, to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And, and it was the naming, the naming of the animals that Adam realized his need for another. His dominion over the animals or over creation was not enough. This is a lesson we're still learning today. Achievement is only temporarily satisfying. Sometimes the temporarily, temporarity, however you say it, of achievement only lasts for minutes. It's almost a cliche that leadership is loneliness. Power, wealth, possessions, position, temporal security, fame, none of these things will do away with the nagging feeling that something is missing. It's only through koinonia relationships. That's a very Christian word, isn't it? Only koinonia, one another relationships, koinonia relationships, that loneliness is defeated. It is only by giving ourselves to others that we find the deep satisfaction God made us to feel. That's the priority of the church. The church, church is our family, and we need to be an intimate part of the church. Derek Kidner one of the best Old Testament scholars of all, puts this in more precise wording. The naming of the animals, a scene which portrays man as monarch of all he surveys, poignantly reveals him as a social being made for fellowship, koinonia, not power. He will not live until he loves, giving himself away to another on his own level. So the woman is present wholly as his partner and counterpart. Nothing is yet said of her as a childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. Now, this is important. Men and women are equal. Uh, they're both, both men and women are made in the image of God. This was a message Jesus brought to the world of his day when women were considered inferior. The Apostle Paul underlined this message in his letter to the Galatians. The Muslim world of today is trying to move us back into the dark ages when it comes to equality of men and women. You've all heard this verses, these verses over and over again. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 27, and 28. You, Christian, are all sons of God. Sons means inheritors, inheriting all of God's blessings. So you are all sons of God, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter, uh, through faith in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, that means placed into the church, that's what it means, filled with the Spirit, all of you who are baptized into the church have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, ethnicity doesn't matter, slave nor free, status doesn't matter, male or female, it doesn't make any difference, they're both equal, for you are all one in the Messiah, in Christ, in the church, in, in Jesus' name. Fabulous verses. Verse 20 still. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. Now, my mother told me when I was a little kid that men had one less rib. And, of course, I believed it. But I can tell you that Adam's kids all had all their ribs. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And for those, in case you care and are into more exegesis here, it also says out of the side of man, uh, I am absolutely positive, um, maybe you can straighten me out, that it, it, he took a rib and he, out of that rib he formed the woman out of man, taken out of man. And then he brought her to the man. It's sort of like the... Um, Father of the bride, isn't it? I mean, uh, in verse 23, he reads, it reads, the man said, I mean, by the way, these are the first recorded words of a human being. But in the NIV Bible that I'm reading from, there's a translation glitch. And I'll show you. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Um, the New Living Translation has got it right. 
and so by most other translations, it reads this way. It's, it's just like, at last, the man exclaimed, at last, this, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She's, she be called women, Isha, because she was taken from man, Ish. Isha and Ish. You know, there was a time in my life when I thought exactly like that. And I can prove it to you. I saw, I saw Valerie, and I said, at last. I mean, show them, Cheryl. There it is. Isn't that awesome? Not the guy on the left, but the, the one on the right. Yeah. And I still look at Valerie and say, wow, thank you, Lord, at last. And this, was, this is a beautiful picture, and it should control our marriage. Normally here, I, I won't take the time, but I could go into a whole bunch of stuff about marriage, but that's not why we're studying this right now. We'll do that later. But the last two verses read this way, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, there's much I'd like to say, but I have to, I've been too long already. As to say they are one flesh is far more than a picture of the obvious sexual relationship, but they are to become one in every way. And then it says in verse 25, it's a very relational verse, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Their nakedness and ease picture the purity and enjoyment of their relationship. There must be a growing openness in a marriage relationship as the husband and wife work at knowing one another more as the years go by. And it takes years to develop the kind of openness that is needed for a marriage to be what God meant it to be in the first place. Years to build up to that place. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that's how we started. That's how we'll end. God saw all that he had made, and it was very... Good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm so thankful for the creation story. It's so awesome to see where we came from. And really, Father, the more I study it, the simpler I understand it. It just is, you just simply made it clear uh, how things got started, uh, quite a bit about who you are already, and, uh, and who we are, and how much you care about us and how important it is that we live for you, and we live that Sabbath rest every day of our lives. Help us to do that as we do and go where you're leading us with that custom-made yoke and with Jesus being the one that decides the direction and the Holy Spirit helping us to understand the whole thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.